0: This is episode six of In the Woods with Dogs, and I am Hannah Halverson. This is part two of the Getting to Know Me episode. Um, in the first episode, we talked about how I became a dog trainer and kind of the evolution of all my dog training businesses until I got up to Common Ground Canine. Um, and this episode talks more about my evolution as a dog trainer, switching from force-free training to balance training and all the things that came along with that and with me I have Keeley Lindler who is a client and friend of mine and she is also in charge of this podcast and in charge of keeping me on a schedule and um, having better organization skills than I do. So it is her goal in life to keep my episodes on track and under an hour we did go over in this one um we had to cut it a couple of times we were sitting out on her patio at her apartment and a couple times people walked by with dogs or with other people and were talking and so i would just stop the recording and we'd pick it up again once they were out of earshot so again always a little rough around the edges but full of great information and fun
1: All right, we are back to do part two of getting to know Hannah. In part one, we just talked about how her business has changed and evolved over the years. And now in part two, we are going to talk about how her training methods have evolved with her as well. So if you haven't listened to part one, definitely go listen to that first. And let's just dive right into part two. Sweet. Yeah, so... (laughs) Um, when you first started getting into training
0: dogs, what was your like? This is my approach. I was well, actually, when I first started, um, when I first get started getting really into training dogs, I was actually super into Caesar Milan. Yeah, because that's all that was really available. Um, to just somebody who had no idea what they were looking for, you know, like uh, I wasn't really thinking, go on YouTube and go watch videos on there. So I just was, um, very, I used to watch that show with my mom all the time. And that was kind of what I, what I had going on. And and that was kind of the, and still kind of is the kind of mindset my dad has about dogs. Um, so that's what I knew. That's what I did. And it's funny to me now, like thankfully the dog Amos that I had at, at the time, is so resilient because there's so many just unnecessary things that I put him through because I really felt like I needed to be harder on him than was necessary or warranted um but I was like super into it and I really felt like I knew what I was doing and my best friend at the time um actually went to Utah for a five week that seems wrong um a long like internship where um at best friends animal society in utah that's a big shelter down there and she was in the orientation and she they were talking about training and they were talking about clicker training And she, having no... Like, she's not a dog person. They've only ever had cats growing up, and she had cats, and she liked my dogs, but she wasn't really... Like, she wouldn't go out and get her own dog, probably. Um, And she just very innocently brought up Cesar Milan's name in a room full of people who trained positively, and they gave her the, like, the biggest look, and they're like, oh, no, we don't say that. <laughs> um, and so she learned all about clicker training and, and positive reinforcement and, you know, science-based, whatever you want to call it. And she came back, and she's like, Hannah, they don't like him. And I was like, well, they're wrong. You know, like, I was all in my own little bubble of, like, no, they're wrong. They're wrong. And she's like, no, seriously, just Google it. And so I Googled, why do people hate Caesar Milan, <laughs> And started learning about positive reinforcement training and had a big aha moment and she taught me what she knew about clicker training and I started doing more research about that and so i f- I swung all the way to the other side mm. and was very very adamant about force-free methods and and uh I don't even know what people call it anymore but um clicker training. I was very into clicker training and, and all that. And I felt really bad about some of the stuff that I had done with Amos and just unnecessary. Like it, it like were you using tools to train Amos? No, or? I was like old school choke chain gang. Um, and like so it was just I mean it could have been a lot worse but and it was only for maybe like the first six months that I had him. But it was things like um if he wouldn't drop something, I would just take his lip and fold it under and press up against his teeth until he opened his mouth and took it out. Um one time, and just, like, overcorrecting him with really poor timing. Yeah. Just, like, and making everything much more egotistical than it needed to be. Like, I remember one time taking him to a dog park. He was three years old when I got him. So he was young and, and spunky, and he's so lazy these days that people don't really realize. But, like, when he was young, he was spunky. Yeah. He's always been a really good dog. He's always made really good choices, just without a lot of intervention from me. But he's spunky, and he'll flip you the bird if you're acting weird so um nowadays he just doesn't do much so I remember we were at the dog park and they had just laid down a bunch of like all mulch brand new mulch and they're big chunks wood chips and he would not stop picking them up and chewing on them and I don't know why it mattered to me so much that that's how he wanted to spend his time at the dog park was just chewing on wood chips that were not dangerous for him but he wouldn't listen to me when I told him to drop, and he wouldn't recall and come to me. And at the time, I didn't realize it's because I was being so intense that he was like, why the fuck would I come by you? And I know right. you're going to make me spit this out, so yeah. why would I come over there? Yeah. And so I just made, like, I just got too, I took it too personally, and I remember being at the dog park being embarrassed that my dog wouldn't recall and getting more mad at him and, like, just taking it personally, like, this dog doesn't mind me instead of being like, this is a two-way relationship. And so it could have been, been a lot, lot worse. And like, I'd alpha roll him for dumb little stuff, but he never really did anything that required, like, a big punishment. But I would still just, like, roll him over just because I thought that was what you're supposed to do. Um, that's why I say it, it's a good thing that he's as easy as he was because it's, like, all of that could have been much worse. If he, I would just roll him over and he'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Here we are. He didn't take it too personally. So then I swung to the opposite side, and I was for maybe like three and a half fish years. I considered myself a force-free trainer. So when you were at volunteering at the animal rescue. Yep. Yep. I was. I was doing it all without prongs and e collars, and um, all clicker training. Were you seeing success? I did. It, it took me a while to find a groove. Um, But I did see... I did have my own little rhythm. And, like, I had stuff that worked. Um, And I still, to this day, don't necessarily, like, discredit force-free training. For sure. I just think that in order to be a really good dog trainer, like, to stand out as a really good dog trainer, you just have to be really talented. And I think that just is more so for force-free trainers. I think it's just... I do think that there are things that are just easier to do with balance training i would agree and so to be a really really good force free trainer you have to be really really creative you have to be extremely patient you have to have the ability to um, see what's going to happen and prevent it from happening you have to be able to prepare for it and, and, like, proof the crap out of all your stuff. Yeah. You know, like, even now, Kamikaze just got up a little bit, and I just ticked her once on her e-collar, and she laid back down. Right. And that's a very easy way to just proof it. But if I hit, if I didn't have that option, I would have had to, you know, I'd have to train more to prepare her for sitting on a patio like this. Right. Where she's never been before and bring her out. Like, I couldn't just bring her out and say, here you are, lay down. I'd have to work harder to get to this point. Yeah. And in the, the thing that really... What I've come to realize in hindsight is I just... I think some people, their brains, they can just wrap their brains around force-free training better than others. Yeah. Like, some people just think that way. Mm-hmm. And... And they are willing to shoulder more of the weight of the training process so that the dog can have a clearer, cleaner, less stressful experience. So I did see success. I definitely hit some roadblocks. There were there were definitely some dogs that, like, looking back now, I wish that I could have just put a prong collar on them. Yeah, and you would have made more headway probably. Yeah, and I, I – I think about those dogs a lot of, like, at the very least, all I really did was nothing. You know, like, I didn't make anybody worse. Right. Which I think that, I think that if you're going to come into being a dog trainer having no idea what you're doing and just winging it, kind of like I did, at least I started off with force-free methods, so true. I didn't. True, that is true,
1: you weren't just hitting I, dogs on I 100. I wasn't just,
0: like, I, like, there's a <laughs> lot of, ri- there. there's a lot of risk in, and you have to you have to be very good with e-collars and prong collars to make them as versatile and as subtle as they can be. And if I would have never learned about force-free training and I would have come off of my Cesar Milan kick and you would have given me that same kind of... Or the, and I would have stayed in that same kind of egotistical mindset
1: mm-hmm.
0: of dog ownership, and you would have put a prong collar or a knee collar in my hand. I think I would have done some damage yeah. because I didn't know any better. Right. And so I do think that it was very important for my journey to go through the phase of being force free. Yep. The other thing that I I credit being force free for so long for is I I understand stress in a way that I think a lot of people that that don't don't have, like like I said, there's good dog trainers and then there's just dog trainers. Like there are really talented dog trainers that are really good at reading dogs and then there's people that just know how to go through the motions. And I think the people who just go through the motions, you can tell when somebody is lacking the understanding of stress signals and how stress builds in the body and how to actually truly read a dog. Um, and so at least going through the the phase of being force free I learned all of that stuff I I learned all of the things that I laid down okay we're back we had to pause because there was a a woman and a child and three dogs walking by and I just wanted to be prepared in case. and they were talking and so they were talking like they were going to want to like see the dogs yeah and they were probably going to say if they were to walk past us they were probably going to talk to us for sure and so but they ended up turning around, and it was actually kind of funny because they were like, oh, there's a dog. Oh, there's two dogs and a person. Okay, let's just turn <laughs> around. Good <laughs> <Get> choice <laughs> they made. And then I turned around <laughs> the corner, and they had three dogs, and so they just, my dogs aren't going to move, but they don't know that. Um, so anyways, I think that having the, the science that forestry trainers put a lot of effort into learning behind me being a balance trainer makes me a better balance trainer yeah not to say that balance trainers don't have science behind what they do and there are definitely individuals who pay a lot of attention to the science but for me I think because it just gave me a more well-rounded experience when working with dogs um so I do think that I'm I don't regret that in yeah. any way um there are clients that I think that I could have helped more yeah. if I was willing to use tools. Yeah. But at the very least, all I did was just take their money. <laughs> you know, like, that was the worst thing. You didn't like, mess any dogs up or anything. Yeah, I didn't make anything worse for anybody. I just didn't make it better fast enough. But I have plenty of clients that did see success, and I even have plenty of clients that... Um, they started with me as a force-free trainer and worked work with me now as a balance trainer. And, like, um, Hannah, who was on the first episode, she came to my advanced reactive dog class with her dog, Chloe. And, um... As a force-free trainer. As a force-free trainer, when I had my facility in Edina, she had started with another training company in the cities that's all force-free still is, um and gone through their basic uh, reactivity, and she needed, like, another, the next step up. And I had an advanced reactivity class where I'd actually take the dogs out. It was only four dogs in the class, and once we got them kind of acclimated to each other, then we would, like, go on field trips. Yeah. And so it was what would bridge the gap between class and real life. Right. And she needed that, and so she came, and I have pictures of her um, and Chloe being in that class and being, like, 20 feet away from other dogs because that's as close as she could get and now we pull chloe out to be a distraction for reactive dogs and hannah is also just like a really good student she also just has like a really good knack for like she's just good with dogs and so she did a lot of work on her own but she stuck with me um and came to me when she was like i think i want to try e-collars and we grew together as a balanced handler and a balanced trainer. So had you, before she brought that up to you, were you already thinking about maybe trying to use some tools? I had been. So my switch officially happened. Probably it was a slow, a slow launch of, um, of being a balanced trainer. It took me a lot of time to really make that change. But the main reason why I switched the first like tool that I got was a bark collar. Mm -hmm. And the main reason was I lived in the city. I had eight dogs I think. And all of my neighbors were pretty cool about me having as many dogs as I had. And I worked really hard to make sure that they weren't a nuisance. Right. And so my my neighbors had no reason like they hadn't complained. But I knew that would wear out eventually if I wasn't careful. And the way that my house was set up, my dogs barking at bad hours in the day, early in the morning, super late at night, was just really disruptive to yeah, the neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. And it it put a lot of uh, pressure and stress on me to whenever they would bark. Like, in, in addition to just being frustrated and annoyed that I was listening to barking... Also I was, worrying about, like, the other people yes. around you. Yes, and, like, is this going to get me in trouble? Are people are people upset at me, for one? Am I disturbing other people, and are they going to complain and yeah. cause an issue for me? Yeah. A bigger issue for me. And so, and all it was, the barking was just, like, barking in their crate when they were, or kennels when they were excited to go outside, or barking when it was, like, I just have dogs that just when, bark. Yeah, just when a dog typically would bark, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, just excited exciting points during the day and they still bark for those things and I have sometimes that bark but it's easy for them to stop like as soon as the excitement dies down or I interrupt it with a verbal knock it off or whatever um they'll just stop but I have other dogs like Kamikaze my dog Ollie they'll just like keep cycling yeah. like they just can't stop and so in no amount of positive training that I had done was helping me, but I was also so stressed out about it that I didn't even have the threshold to do it. Like I didn't have the patience to deal with it anymore. And it would resort to me like yelling and screaming at them because I was so frustrated and I felt so helpless. Yeah. And so I finally decided to get a bark collar for those dogs because it was all automatic. It had nothing to do with me. It would just, it would correct the dogs. I couldn't because my biggest concern when I, when I first started thinking about an e-collar was I thought that I would take my frustration out on the dogs easier because there was more of a disconnect because I could just push a button. Right. And I didn't, it was different than like actually going up and like smacking their crate and yelling at them, yeah. which is very personal. And so I was like, I'll just be meaner to them if there's a disconnect. That was what I was thinking.
1: Hmm.
0: And so I was like, I want to take that out of my hands entirely. And right. so I got a bark collar. And then the other reason was that way I knew that it's only thing it could do was was for barking like i couldn't i couldn't do anything else manually i couldn't overly correct them for any other behavior besides barking cuz the only reason i wasn't in control the only reason the bark collar existed was to correct barking and so i got it i ordered a couple collars just for the dogs that needed them did a ton of research on which model i should get and when i got the box from amazon i cried <laughs> And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I said I would never put things like this on my dogs. And, like, then the other piece of it was I was really worried about, like, what would happen if people found out I was a force-free trainer that used a bark collar. Yeah, yeah. So that was a huge reason why a lot of this stuff took a while for me to commit to is because I was worried about the backlash of it. And so, but I did it. And I I talked to some of my, my peers about it. And we all decided, like, it's okay. Like, they gave me permission to be a force-free trainer that bought a bark collar. Yeah. And so I put the bark collar on my dogs, and the first couple times that they barked, they got corrected, they yelped, and I felt horrible. But I would go down and look at them, and they were just fine. They were just chilling. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God. And it just stopped the barking. Like, in three corrections, they just didn't even bark anymore. Like, the, the normal pattern... Of me going down to let them out, they just wouldn't even bark. And they'd still be down there happy and wagging their tails because they're excited to go outside. They just weren't barking. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me that it's seriously that easy. And, like, (laughs) for three years, I've been telling people, don't put anything like this on your dog. And it's... They're fine. Like, I'm sitting here thinking that I'm going to be, like, you know, suppressing my dogs. And I'm going to be, like... Their, their emotional state is going to be worse off because they are being corrected for just a, a symptom of their emotional state, you know, all that, and they were fine, and then I had to bring a client dog in, a board and train, and I was really nervous, they always bark, they, like, like, they would just kennel fight, Yeah. and I would always have to put, like, visual barriers up, but they could still hear the nails on the hardwood floor and the collar jingle and all that, and they'd all still bark. And I also, being in the, as a force free trainer, I, I, and maybe just, it was because I was less experienced, but I determined that, like, that amount of stress was just really, really bad, so every time it happened, I would think about how I was failing my dogs, that Mm -hmm. they would, they would kennel fight, and but they would always go back to being totally fine and like if they were out on a leash they didn't have issues with dogs they weren't reactive it was just if they were in the comfort of their own home and a strange dog that they didn't know was coming was came in yep they would have words about it and the second the dog was in the crate they stopped caring but at the time I was like my dogs are reactive this is dangerous to their mental state I'm not being a good enough dog trainer because my dogs get so jacked when they see other dogs And then i was worried about like well i don't want to put the bark collar on them in that moment because what if they associate the stress of not being able to bark with the dog and then they're not going to like dogs and it's not going to solve that problem that they get really stressed out when a dog walks in the house and i was like i i am still just like super stressed out about them barking at all so i'm gonna do it and sure enough i walked the dog downstairs and they just looked at it like sup dog like, they weren't sitting there trembling, like, oh, I want to get you, but I can't. <laughs> I'm not allowed to bark at you, but I want to. They were literally just like, you know, relaxed body language, wagging their tail. They got up off their beds, but they were like, hey, dog. So they had big five by five by six kennels down there. So they had like plenty of room. And they could see. It was like, I could see their whole body. They weren't in a crate. And they were fine. And then. She, Kamikaze, when she was younger, she realized she could jump my four-foot fence. Mm. And the first couple times it happened, I, you know, she came right back. It wasn't a big deal. She was maybe, like, nine months old. But, and nobody was out. She would, because I had one dog that would jump the fence just because he could. And yeah. he would literally just go to the other side and sniff around. He wasn't, like, trying to run, <laughs> run away. away yeah. He just physically could jump the fence, and it didn't even phase him, or he didn't consider that he shouldn't do that. And so she'd follow him, but when she would go over there, then she'd be like, I'm free, and she'd cause a ruckus. Well, my neighbor across the street, I lived, like, on the top of a hill on a corner, and these people were a little bit below me and across the street, and they were walking their dog. They didn't have a fence, so they were walking their little, they had, like, some kind of small white dog, and they walked him over to my side of the yard to go potty, but they were still on, like, the little section of yard that's technically... Like, you couldn't be mad at somebody for being in your yard. Right, right, they're right. still... Like, her feet were on the road, but her dog, at the end of a yeah. six-foot leash, was in my yard. Right. And I was on a hill. But all my dogs started going bonkers, because this dog was down the road from them. And she jumped the fence mm. and started, like... She was nine months old. She was just being... You know, she was just being a puppy, but she was circling the owner and scared the crap out of the owner. Yeah. And, um... So... I jumped the fence and ran over and grabbed her, and, you know, again, nine months old, didn't have the best recall on her, so I just had to, like, stop the woman from moving until Mm -hmm. I could get my dog, and it was a whole thing, and she didn't do anything, but it scared the crap out of her, and I, I don't, she's a German Shepherd, that dog was really small, it just scared me enough to be like, that cannot happen, yeah like, that woman could easily call and report me for having a dog at large that's a severe consequence for me this can't happen again and even you know that's the selfish consequence but like that poor woman was terrified right this is a giant german shepherd and then she did it again once when this guy was just walking down the alley so on the other side because again i was on a corner so on the other side of the fence line was the alley she jumped the alley and she was just like hey dude to this guy but she was wearing her big do not pet collar <laughs> and she's a giant german shepherd so, so this he guy was, was like petrified oh my gosh yeah and i was like she's friendly <laughs> like that came out of my mouth like shit don't be scared of my dog but also like you know you're just very self aware of of in that moment so that's when i decided i either needed to install an invisible fence yeah. or i needed cuz it wouldn't be safe for her to be out there on a long line for sure. or a tie out she's yeah. a 9 month old working line german shepherd she'd break a leg and I tried that. And then I tried, like, heightening my fence with additional wired fencing. And I tried a visual barrier with some windscreen. And she could just, she figured it out. Yeah. And either way, she still would just go over. And she would only go over, Atticus would go over because he felt like it. She would only go over if there was somebody else on the other side of the fence, which yeah. made it more dangerous. Yeah. Um, so that's when I decided either I need an invisible fence, again, that would make it... Automatic and I would not be involved in that process For at sure. all, or I needed an e collar at that point, and so that's when I got the e collar, and we had a horrible first experience that involved a lot of crying because she jumped the fence. I didn't know enough in that moment about e collars to know about like when to correct or well my timing I understood because I was a first free trainer so my clicker training skills <laughs> come in handy. I'm I have very good timing, um, but I didn't know about increasing the level Mm. for a higher arousal Um, situation and so we were just playing in the backyard trying to like find a baseline and the neighbor's dog came out and he was behind a fence but she jumped the fence and was fence fighting and I didn't I was just like I had a dog trip arc at the time and I think it goes up to 128 and we were just, like, in the backyard trying to find a baseline, and so I think it was at, like, 15, and I was like, 15, ah, like, desperately, like, ah, I don't want to push the button, but I'm going to. And it didn't phase her, and I climbed up to, like, 67. And she was yelping and spinning in circles and, like, you know, scratching at her neck, and I don't have a gate on that side, so she had to come all the way around to the front. And eventually, And I just kept, like, hitting her, being like, come on, come on, just do it. <laughs> and she turned around and came back. And when she got in the backyard and she just sat there like, what the fuck was that? And, again, only, like, nine months old. And I just started sobbing. I was like, I'm so sorry. I want to do this to you. And the neighbors were watching. So yeah. it was, like, a whole scene. Makes it worse. It was a bad first first introduction to the e-caller. Um, and it's just because I didn't know what I was doing. And I just got stuck in a moment of, like, well, shit, this is when I need it. Yep. Yeah. But I wasn't ready for it. So those were the two things that, like, pushed me into I need something different to solve these problems. And she did stop jumping the fence. So that worked. (laughs) Um, So it did solve that problem. I did solve my barking problem. Um, And then I started saying, like, okay, I'm only... Oh, and then we were training for Mondio Ring at the time. And Mondio Ring is challenging for a dog like her... Um, because... So, Ramondi Ring is a protection sport. The The decoy, or the bad guy, um, wears a full bite suit. And most, instead of the sport that they train for... Well, I can't really say they train for it now. We haven't trained for it in probably eight months. But um, that we have had been training for IGP, it's not just a sleeve. So, full bite suit and um, they just train dogs differently because it's, it's primarily a Malinois sport and Malinois just respond a little bit differently to, um, bite work. And the biggest one being the possessiveness is just different. Um, and I, the biggest thing I was struggling with kamikaze with that was in that sport, the dog goes out, they're on a grip, biting the guy's leg. And instead of outing them and leaving them there like they do in IGP. So in IGP, they're biting, working the the grip. You out the dog, and the dog stays and barks at the guy and holds them there. And that's still a form of possessing, even though they don't have, they don't physically have a hold on him. They have a hold, they're controlling his movements. And so the dog gets to possess their, the thing that they want the most in life is that sleeve. And they get to possess that still in a way. And then you walk up to them tell them to heal and walk away. In Mondio Ring, you recall them back to you, mm. and it was really challenging for her because she wanted to stay yeah. with the guy. She was like, no, this is my thing. I'm fighting for this thing. And they just build dogs differently and so she didn't. She just wasn't set up for that. And the club that I was training with, the people were all great, but we just, we were not prepared to do all that on our own. Like, I needed to, I should have been with, something, with someone a little bit more experienced in building up dogs. And so, I started thinking, oh, I could use an e-collar for that, for that recall. Because she'd out, but then she'd just stand there and look at me and not recall. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I could use an e-collar for that. And, and then I was like, okay, I'm only going to use an e-collar for sports stuff. And then the <laughs> other area that I started using it was whenever I'd be working obedience with her, um, I would reward her with a ball, and then she would take it, do like a victory lap, drop it, and then go sniff. And she's just a much more environmentally focused dog than I am, or than Biggie is, and then than I was ready for. Um, and so she would just go kind of fuck off, and I needed a way to get her back faster. And so there. I... Whole, like, whole, like, hold on. They a- were back again. Every single time a person walks by and they're talking, I stop it because I don't want their conversation yeah. to get picked up. Um, so... I then, it, so I would correct her when she would go disengage. I would just give her a little tap on the e-collar and call her back. And so yeah. but that was when I really had a, a wake-up call and like an aha moment with e-collars and, and corrections in general that previously I didn't fully ha- understand. And that moment was f- when I was doing it without the e-collar, the training with, for obedience using the ball. It would take probably 30 seconds to get her back, 30 to 45 seconds to get her to come back to me and to want to be by me. And I did all this engagement building and all this, like, well, maybe her toy drive's just not high enough. How can I build more toy drive and all this stuff to, like, make me more interesting? Yeah. And nothing really stuck. Nothing really worked. Like, we had a great relationship when we were playing, but when we were training, she just wanted to go fuck off. And so it would take me, like, 30 to 45 seconds to get her back But when I used the e-collar and instantly called her back, like, right when she dropped the ball, I could get another rep in. So the number of successful reps that I had went, I probably doubled it. So what I could do in 10 minutes, maybe 8 reps, now I'm doing 16 reps in 10 minutes. And so the reinforcement history was getting stronger which solved the issue of not wanting to do the work. Right. Because I was able to make it more reinforcing yeah. because we were just doing more and more reps of, like, do this tiny little bit, get a reward. Do this tiny little bit, get a reward. And she instantly came back. The other piece was because there was a consequence of leaving, she didn't want to leave. Right. Yeah. And that made being next to me doing my thing Rewarding. more exciting. Yeah. And that was the first time I had ever seen a dog, well... That's the first time i had ever experienced that where like clarity of consequence if you don't do the thing made them happier I just had never visualized that before because before I never used anything that made a dog unhappy right and so that's when I really started to be like hold on a second I think that everything everyone has ever told me about these tools is wrong and I was regurgitating Information that I had no experience with and just telling people you can't do that because here's, you know, you're going to ruin your dog, whatever. I remember specifically seeing a video once. Also, the concept of, like, negative reinforcement and positive punishment just was nowhere in my brain. I could, like, tell you what the definition was and I could give you, like, examples because I was a science-based dog trainer, but I didn't really have, like, practical application in the world of dog training. Yeah. And so I remember watching this video of a local dog trainer in Minneapolis working on recall with an e collar And he was kind of explaining what he was doing. And he talked about putting stem on when he recalled the dog. And I remember being like, you can't do that. That, That's so backwards. You're literally teaching the dog not to come to you. <laughs> and now, like, I and it stuck with me long enough, like, for a very long time. I was like, I do not understand this. And it reminds me of, like, things that like jokes that my parents would make when I was little that were inappropriate yeah, and they would all laugh but I didn't get it it, and I would remember it my whole life and then all of a sudden as an adult I would be like oh my god why were they saying these things around children but it's because it was so confusing to me that it stuck with me forever and I would just like I something would make me think of it and I'd mull over it for a while and I'd be like I don't understand the process here what is going on and I was smart enough not to ask a stupid question on the internet to this guy especially being a force free trainer I didn't want to like you know make it seem like I was trying to argue with him and that's also where I was coming from you know right. I, I probably would have argued with him if he gave me a reason I wouldn't have believed him and then I remember when I first started using e collars for recall and I started doing just that and all of a sudden my brain was like oh my god this is that video you're doing what that guy was doing in that video it's negative reinforcement that's all it is and it, like, it never occurred to me that you could make that sensation so subtle that a dog wouldn't perceive it as something to shut down for. Yep. So that was kind of my, like, personal growth into becoming a balance trainer. And just a lot of it was just having dogs that didn't respond to positive training the way that I knew how to do it Yeah. well enough that I didn't, I just would get really frustrated. And the biggest thing about what what force free did for me that is negative like what ended up being kind of toxic about the community was that the the people around you when you talk to people about force free training as a force even as a force free trainer the people that I was around even though they thought they were being helpful they would put a lot of the weight on me mm-hmm. when i was already frustrated yeah so i would go to them and say I'm at a roadblock and I don't know what to do, but I feel really helpless. I feel like really stressed out. And their response would be something along the lines of, well, you just need to work harder to make it clearer for your dog. Mm -hmm. Like your dog is only doing that because they don't understand. So you need to work harder to make it clearer for your dog and help your dog understand. And I was like, I physically cannot work any harder because I'm too frustrated. Yeah. Like I have reached my threshold and my emotional outbursts when I was frustrated, like the amount that I would actually like yell and get mad and emotional at my dogs, happened way more often as a force-free trainer yep. than it would that it does than it does now. Yeah, because I have tools that get me a response faster now, so I don't. Reach that feeling of helplessness. Right. I don't reach that feeling of I'm not being good enough because the tools that I have are effective at communicating what I need to communicate, and so I don't overcorrect dogs and and lash out the way that I was afraid I would because I don't need to. Even a yeah. subtle amount of leash pressure or prong or e collar pressure gets me an immediate response, yeah. and so I feel I get my needs met sooner. So that's when I really that was like that was the big thing that changed for me, and I realized like shit, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be emotional in the use of these tools as I was with the, as a force free trainer because I just don't I don't feel as shitty about myself and about my dogs anymore. Like I don't feel like I'm not doing a good enough job. Right. And I also just so I got into dogs like Kamikaze and Bauer, where there's there is no way that Bauer could have and like I usually don't like when people say stuff like this because like I said in the beginning I think that force-free training can be done really well yeah it's just harder to do it really well for sure and it gets even harder when you have a dog like Bauer yeah you would have to work so hard to do things with him force-free they can be done all dogs can learn force-free they really can it really just depends on how well you can teach those things. Right. And not everybody has that skill set. And I, and it's not even a skill set thing. Like, I have the capability of learning. It's I just, just don't patience. want to. Yeah, and, and I, and to me, to me, it is more important to me that my dog has a good quality of life now. And, and someone might argue, like, well, you're being less stressful in your learning process you know with errorless learning whatever they're they're not experiencing stress during the learning process but for me it's more important that that dog can be off leash because of the type of dog that he is he needs to be able to be off leash he needs to be able to range out he needs to be able to go hunt and if I had to take four years to get there right he would be a really hard dog to live with and a long line isn't enough for him, you know. So when I got into dogs like him, I really had to think about, that was like, I remember when I got him, I was still technically a force-free trainer, and a lot of people were like, are you going to train him force-free? And I was like, you know what, if it comes to it, I'm open to an e-collar. Like, that's what I would say all the time. Didn't even really know what I was saying at the right. time, but I was like, I'm open to it, I'm open to it. But it took me a while to get to that point with him, and I remember when I put it on, I still remember I didn't use it well but he figured it out and we figured it out and we stumbled through it together um, and now that dog can and can have a very nice quality of life and I have a real I have great control over that dog and I get complimented on it a lot with people that know that breed really well um, and have seen Bauer work and how driven he is and how aggressive he can be they're impressed that I was able to break through with him, and I just don't think I would have been able to do it force-free. I don't yeah. think he would be happy that way. Yeah. Um, so that was a big thing for me, but it took a while for me to be comfortable using them with clients. Like, I, I did for a while, say, like, when I initially got a burnt Collar and all that, I was my business partner at the time, she was also force-free, and we kind of came to – we were both open-minded at that point. We weren't – Um gross forestry trainers that just like lose their minds at the sight of an e-collar at that point we were open to them and we understood that they had context we just didn't feel comfortable using them and we didn't feel comfortable teaching average dog owners how to use them we yeah. were kind of in the camp of like it's fine for people that know what they're doing right. but it's not okay that anybody can go buy one yeah and so we we just agreed that we're not going to put them on client dogs and then when I rebranded I started using, um, slip leads more often because I started, well, I kind of had this aha moment of like, Hannah, you use leash pressure at home with your own dogs all the time, but you won't teach a client how to do it. Yeah. But you see, you do it. Like my knee jerk reaction is to use my leash to communicate with my dogs and it works. And so I'm like, how come I'm not teaching my clients this? And so I started putting dogs on slip leads all the time and I had a hard I remember some of those early lessons where I had a really hard time like explaining what I was doing because it was all so new to me yeah (laughs) and I just like I felt like I needed to tiptoe around it a lot more like okay we're gonna do this really mean thing to your dog but it's gonna be okay I promise and I just like I always walked away being like I feel like I made it a bigger deal than it needed to be but I, don't, I just don't know the word, I don't know the language. I don't have a spiel for it yet. Yeah. Um, and then I would only put e-collars on dogs that I felt, like, really, 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 really badly needed it. Like, what would that mean? Like,
1: what scenario that a dog would be, like, really, really, really bad needed?
0: If leash pressure with a slip lead wasn't enough. Oh, and also prongs. Like, prongs were, like, a super last resort for me. And okay. I would tell people, like... I'm not against prongs. If you want to use a prong, I just have no idea how to use one. It's literally the same thing as the same mechanics I was doing with the slip lead, but in my brain it was so different. Different, yeah. And I was like, I just don't know how to use it, so I don't want to tell you how to use it. And I was more comfortable with e-collars just because I had been using e-collars. Like, I didn't even have prongs on Kamikaze and Bauer for a long time. Um, Because my issues, I just, the e-collar was more versatile in that moment. And so, I really only used e collars for people that like really wanted off leash control, and I think if they like for some reason, I would jump from sliplyy to e collar instead of just sliply to prong or just straight to prong um, and only if people asked me for it so that's one thing when we were talking about Hana earlier and how you asked if she knew that I was using e-collars or if I had been using e-collars when she came around and asked yeah. me. I think that part of the reason why certain people will come to me to ask about e-collars is because they it's a big step for them. They're people who were previously force-free and had really been dedicated to that. Yeah. And they don't want to just go full bore right into a balance trainer like it just makes them nervous. Yeah. Because it's such a hard line for a lot of people. So they can come to me. Like, I literally have a client. I haven't seen her in a long time. But I had a client that, like, don't tell anybody yet. I'm not ready to, like, out myself. But I, can you come teach me how to use an e-collar? But I'm not, and like, don't tell anybody yet. Yeah. I will tell the world when I'm when ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I'll tell them. But for right now, can you just come show me how to use this? And because they knew... That I had made that switch They were more comfortable coming to me for it Yeah that makes sense Instead of somebody coming in just full bore Yep And it also helps like I can usually tell when somebody's not comfortable Using prongs and e-collars But they're at the point where they're open they to it They they need it Yep Yeah. And I can, I know what they have been told because I used to tell people that stuff. Right. And so everything that they're nervous about, I can debunk it in a way, in a compassionate way, instead of being like, that's wrong, you know, because I don't hate force retraining. Right. But I do know that some of the, the rhetoric about e-collars and prongs is just incorrect and comes from just not experiencing using those tools. Like you just have never actually put one in your hand. Right. And so you have seen videos, you have heard stories, you have this idea in your head of what it is, but you've never actually done it. You've never actually put it on your dog that you know really well and seen how they respond and gone, oh, that's not what I ex- expected. Right. And so I think I can come at it in a little bit more gentle of a way when someone's kind of on the fence. And I have had people say, even after I give them my whole spiel about it, they say, no, thank you. And that's okay. Yeah. I'm not going to like... I'm not going to force people to do something that they're not ready for yet. Um, I have had people fight with me on it, and I just will tell them, like, you're just not ready, and that's okay. But I've had a lot of clients that I've, I've sat down with and been like, I don't mean to sound like a dick, but you will put a prong and a knee collar on your dog someday. I can tell. Yeah, you'll just like, wait. Like, I can already just tell.
1: Just wait. One day you'll
0: want to do it. You'll do yeah, it, <laughs> and it'll feel great. But right now you're not ready, and that's okay. Um, Let me backtrack for a second, yes. then.
1: So, just because I have a reactive dog and I've only ever used an e-collar, mm-hmm. what were your strategies f- when you were force-free mm-hmm. to train a
0: reactive dog? Like, when you had Hana and Chloe? Yep. Like, what
1: What was that What did I even like? do?
0: Yeah. Um, that's a good question, because I do think that people that don't like force-free training don't really... Again, they don't know. Just like the people that are hating on balance training, they don't know. They right. don't know what we actually tell our clients. Right. So, I worked a lot on handler engagement. Okay. I worked a lot on um, impulse control. So, like, those little games that I had you play, I play those a lot with my clients. Okay. Where you're doing it just because, like, it's a fun little thing to work on. Yeah. Yeah. But for my clients, I was like, this will solve your problem. And really, all it is is just teaching the dog that certain things are not available to them, right? Yes. And like, you have to engage with me before something is available to you. So the yeah. idea that reactivity is coming from an impulse control place or a, a lack of mindfulness of like how to behave. Do you still situation. think that? Yeah. Kay. And so, but I I can teach impulse control in a different way and get it faster. Yeah. But it's still the same objective. It's still teaching the dog that like that is just not available to you. Yeah. And the emotions that go along with that, all that frustration will go away if I can continue to communicate with you that that's just not going to be an option. And here's an alternative. So lots of handler engagement because that was the alternative to focusing on a dog. Pay attention to me. Yeah, impulse control to get you comfortable with the idea that that's not available to you, and it's not frustrating yeah. that you can't have that. Yeah, um, just like practicing it with things that weren't another dog. Yep. Yeah. And then I would teach like dogs that really had a lot of toy play or toy drive. We would do a lot of toy play, like tug, starting and stopping, flirt pull, working in impulse control in that context because it got people and the dogs comfortable comfortable communicating in a high state of arousal. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So a lot of like creative little side projects that mimicked the overall goal of being able to keep a level head in the process or the presence of dogs or whatever their trigger was a lot of just like, um, learning how to read a dog, body language stuff, talking about trigger stacking and how stress affects the dog, um, how to set a a training session up, how to just be more aware of arousal levels so that when you walk, like you don't get your dog hyped up for a walk and then come outside and expect them to be calm. Yeah. Um, really really slow like I used to do this thing I called it the checkpoint system where it would literally be like you walk out your door stop and reward for engagement but I would make people wait for engagement because I wanted it to be a default behavior and so people would get really bored with it that was like my number one struggle with people is I was like no just wait because like the dog would come out and they would just stare out into the space yeah and you just had to stay there until you got like a good rhythm of them realizing like oh we're not moving forward So I guess there's nothing else to do besides look at you and get food. And then they would eventually start doing it more often. And then you would give them, like, your heel cue and walk a short distance and do it again, like, at the end of the sidewalk there. And work on engagement. Like, now you can see all of this information. Work on engagement. Then we would go to the next point. So it would be, like, checkpoint A, checkpoint B, checkpoint C. And just break it way down for both the dog and the handler. Um, And just, like little like leash management and redirection maneuvers. Like I would practice people doing like emergency U-turns. So when you see a dog coming your way, like how to get your dog away from that trigger really quickly. Um, what else? Oh, and then engage, disengage. So a lot of people still do that. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I think it's it sets a dog up for a really good foundation um, of using tools, but it can also be, we can also run into issues with it. So basically the idea that, when you see, when the dog sees a dog, that becomes the cue to check in with you. So we would, right, this yeah. is where it would get really confusing for, for people sometimes, but we would click every single time the dog saw a dog because the clicker is paired with food and right. food always comes from you. So right. you would build a, Hey, look at me without having to say, Hey, look at me. So we load the clicker up as a, a, a recognizable cue as soon as the dog would notice another dog and we would watch the dog, the dog's body language. And so we would see the dog, we'd look down at our dog, and as soon as their little ears went up and their eyes, you know, they would just like, boom, I see a dog. We'd click. And they'd look at you, if you were an appropriate distance away, and you'd feed them. And then they'd look back, click. And you'd feed them, click, feed them, click, feed them, click, feed them. Until all of a sudden, the presence of a dog means engage with me. And we would get to a point, though, where we didn't actually and like I when I was doing it like with board and trains and day training I could fade out the like I could fade out the food I could change the emotional piece I could address the arousal issue well because I could read dogs well and my timing was good and I knew how to like push the envelope without taking it too far and all that and so I could get a dog to a point where they were calmly engaging and disengaging but most people were having a hard time replicating that piece of it, and so what would end up happening, is they would still, this is like what happened with Archer. Archer did this, Amber and Archer, where he, like, had this down pat, but the problem was, all his feelings were still there, and so instead of calmly looking at the dog, and calmly looking back to get rewarded for disengaging, he would just, like, rapid fire, like, "Look look at the dog, look at you, look at the dog, look at you, look at the dog, look at you. Yeah. and, if, if in a situation like that, if you're, like, a little bit too slow with your food, right. you didn't see the dog, and so the first few check-ins go unnoticed, yeah. it's really easy for the dog to just go right back into being explosive sure. because they're still feeling all the feelings. They're just putting all of that into this new behavior. And so you're hitting this threshold of, okay, what's the next step? And that's where, like, we have a new guy coming to group training, and he's at that step. He taught his dog a really – that I mean, he did it really well, and he did it all by himself. And it's very impressive, the work that he's done with his dog, but his dog's in that phase. And now we're pushing the envelope of, like, okay, let's give him less feedback. Because how do you get to the point where you're simply just neutral around the dog? How do you get to the point where it's no longer, like, okay, we see a dog, it's still significant, and I have to do this behavior in order to feel better.
1: Right.
0: How do we get to the point where the dog just doesn't even have the, like, you don't even have to feel better because you just didn't even feel like shit in the first place? And so we'll just kind of now expose the dog to other dogs, and you can see him, like, desperately looking back at his owner, like, give me feedback, what should I be doing right now? And we're having to kind of rip the Band-Aid off of, like, you just exist now. Um, So that's, I just had to, I had to overwork it, and I had to really come at it from, because when you're a first-reacher and you don't have have tools that will effectively stop arousal in its tracks, you have to avoid arousal at all costs. Yeah. And that's just really challenging with certain dogs. There are some dogs like, like Bauer, you walk outside or you walk into any new situation and he's instantly over threshold. Yeah. Like just simply going outside is over threshold. And I had plenty of clients like that, that we had to do so much work inside. And I would just, I would tell them just, you cannot walk your dog for weeks because they're not ready and that's really upsetting to a lot of people because there are, like, to me, I don't really care about walking my dog on leashed walks. So it wasn't practical advice because I didn't realize that there are people like you who walk your dogs, like, 85 times a day because you <laughs> like it. Yeah. Like, you like going outside and going for a walk. You would probably do it even if you didn't have a dog. Yeah. And so it was really punishing to my client right. to train that way. Yeah. Because they really just wanted to go for a walk. Yeah so that yeah and i've been training i've been training with tools now consistently for like two years so that middle ground i was just kind of working my way towards using tools but not fully ready to commit to it yet but also just because the way that i like to learn things i just had to do it i just had to do it long enough with my own dogs and with a couple client dogs that i felt like I was. it was okay that I experimented with them um, to figure out the rhythm right. and figure out, like, what is my philosophy for using an e-collar? Like, how does Hannah Halverson introduce an e-collar to a dog, and how does Hannah Halverson teach the use of prongs?
1: How do you introduce an e-collar? I've always kind of been curious about that because both of my dogs were trained on e-collar by someone else, not yeah. me. I know how to use them now, but... I get asked a
0: lot by people, yeah. like, how do you condition a dog to e-collar? And I'm like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know, actually. So the first step that I take is to condition the dog to understanding physical pressure at all. So a lot of dogs are just not used to tactile communication yeah. as a form of communication. Right. Like, they have experienced a tight leash. They have experienced you touching them, but they haven't been taught that that is me trying to communicate something to you and we, we need to engage in that moment right um and so whether with a slip leader or a prong I will first teach the dog tightness on the leash plus me saying something to usually sit because most dogs by the time they come to me already know how to sit yeah by the time we're teaching them leash pressure they have already been taught how to sit like I'm right. not doing this with eight week old puppies right um so I teach them tightness on the leash I say sit If they get confused, I show them how to sit, I help them, we do a few reps, and then pressure comes off. Yep. So they learn that that pressure is not mysterious, and out of nowhere, that pressure serves a function, it's just communication. And I I find that dogs respond much better to leash pressure because it's it's very physical, it's very obvious, that's coming from me. Yeah. Like, they can feel that directional pressure and that leash is there, it's tangible. Whereas an e-collar comes out of nowhere... And so they don't really know what it is right away. So one method that some people will do and what I thought was correct when I first, and maybe it is if you know how to do it a different way than me or you're just better at it than I am, but you'll read that you need to like find a baseline with the dog. So a lot of these e-collars, like good brands of e-collars have a hundred or more levels, which means they can be super subtle. And so you have to find the level where your dog even acknowledges it in the first place. Yeah. But what I found trying that is, like, when I did that with Biggie the first time, we got all the way up to 75 before he even noticed it. And by that point, he was yelping. Right. Because it was startled him. And what I realized was, it's such a novel sensation that most dogs that are not really, like, jumpy dogs just don't even pay attention to it yeah. like it just doesn't even bother them enough to really notice it and I'm great at reading dogs body language I can tell when a dog is feeling an e-collar and when they're not so it's not like I'm sitting there and he's telling me I'm feeling this and I'm like oh I must not be feeling it crank it up again <laughs> but it, and then on top of it that slow climb just yeah. desensitizes them to it so you start it like like I can't even feel a mini educator until 10 and even yeah. then it like it just kind of feels like scratchy it yeah. doesn't even feel like a shock um, and so that slow climb, you know, you start at 10, then maybe you jump to 15 to 20 to 30. That slow climb just desensitizes to them to it until you hit like 74, which is not ignorable. And they're just, it's so confusing. It comes out of nowhere to them. Right. So I no longer try to find a baseline. So I just go to a level that I'm pretty positive a dog can feel it like 12 or 15 on a bigger dog, depending on the dog. And a bigger dog that i've spent some time with and i you know i can tell they're kind of you know a little more resistant to physical like the leash pressure part of it they it took a little bit more convincing i can tell that that physical piece to them isn't as they don't care as much um i may start a dog at like a 15. but i started at a level where it's not so significant that it's going to make them jump out of their skin but it's significant enough that i know that they can feel that sensation right and then I just layer leash pressure with it so a context they already know and I just add in that new sensation and I tie those two things together same okay. pattern everything so I again I put the collar on him and I tell him again sit use leash pressure use e-collar pressure at the same time they sit both of those things turn off both of those pressures stop and once we do that a few times then I'll start to do no leash pressure yeah. just e-collar and then leash pressure if I need to go hey you need to sit and they already understand that to kind of help them out and usually at that point you'll at least see the dog slow down in how fast they're sitting because now there's just something new and it's standing alone that they're not like shit what is that and they're like they're not scared of it but they're just like hold on and a little distracted so they kind of like turn their head back a little and they you can just their ear might rotate back to kind of feel that's, you know, just to tell you that they're feeling that sensation and you immediately show them leash pressure and, and sometimes I even just guide their butt down too and I say sit again so that there's no time where they're sitting and wondering what is that sensation. They just yeah. immediately know yeah. same thing as we did before with the leash. And then we just do wrap after wrap after that and then we just do different contexts. So then I'll start showing them place because I like to make it something really versatile. So I want to be able to put my dog, push my dog away from me with the e-collar and I also want to draw my dog in with the e collar, so, so that's be,
1: where I struggle. My dogs only draw in,
0: yeah, because on that's most dogs do that by default because they want it. They feel that sensation and they're like, "What the hell is that?" And they want to come into you, their safety area. They think something's getting them. Sometimes they'll like turn and look at their butthole, like they think a bug bit them in the Hi. butt. Yeah. He used and, to think it was coming like from his penis. Yeah, because it just kind of. Like, have you ever been electrocuted? Or no. Like Shock? <laughs> no. It doesn't. I mean, I've feel, put their collar on me. Yeah, but it doesn't feel, like when it catches you off guard and it's like a big one. It doesn't feel like hot fire like you expect it to. Yeah. You just all of a sudden like like one time I picked up an extension cord like where two connect two extension cords met. Yeah. And it was sitting in like I mean, not even a centimeter of water. Mm. And I didn't expect it. Like, I just didn't even think about it. It didn't even phase me that this was maybe unsafe. I've touched a million extension cords in my life. And I picked it up, and all of a sudden I dropped it. And then my arm just kind of felt achy and just kind of, like, tight and weird. Almost like it kind of fell asleep a little bit. And yeah. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> and it took me a second to be like, oh, shit, I think you just got shocked. <laughs> like, oh, shit, that was dangerous. Now what the fuck are you going to do? Um and so I think they have the same experience. I think it just kind of like radiates down. I don't know if it's their nerves or their muscles or ha- whatever, but it radiates down a little bit and it'll kind of just like come out the other end. And so they just have a moment of like, somebody just bite me in the ass. <laughs> and they just don't know what it is yet. They just right. have never experienced it. And so they need more, they need more, uh, just more experience, more repetitions Um, but a lot of dogs will. But the other thing is a lot of people just use it as recall because it's easy. It's an extension of your leash and so they're out there. You tell them to come. You give them a little tap tap. They come in and it works great. And so unless you intentionally use it in the beginning and every single like condition it with the intention of I need this to be versatile, it gets really easy for them to just get stuck on drawing into you. And I have a lot of dogs that that will do that too and it just has hit a point where it's just not as important to me yeah i mean that's me now it's yeah just like with nala
1: when i've been trying to do the emergency downs Han yeah. will do it now and i tap him and lay down
0: she just slinks in yeah and i'm yeah. like you know what it's really not that big right. of a deal the main thing is that you know what they're gonna do yeah because for the for the emergency down situation so just for background emergency down is your dogs are off leash and they are at a distance from you And you tell them to down, and they down in their tracks. They don't come back to you and lay down. They just stop where they are and they lay down. And the reason for it is sometimes you're just in situations where it's not safe to come all the way back to you. Um, And you need them to stay where they are. And it's just another level of communication and the more important thing in that situation though if you're if you're in a true emergency is that you know how your dog is going to react right if you have no idea what your dog is going to do then you can't communicate effectively with them so if my dogs that I know are going to recall I might just not recall them yeah you know like if I know that the danger is by me then I may not recall them um Or I'll move and, you know, recall them to a different spot or something. But like with these two dogs, the German Shepherds, they can lay down anywhere. Um, And I just, it's just something that they, when I taught them their e-collar stuff, it was easy. And they're German Shepherds, so they just learn everything in two seconds. But, um, yeah, so that's the kind of conditioning process. And I usually tell people, like, use it all the time for a lot of things, yeah. even when you don't necessarily need it. Because sometimes people will ask me, like, well, don't you give the dog a second, you know, to be right before you use pressure? And I say not when I'm conditioning the dog what the pressure means. Because right. if you... Hey, lay back down. Um, everybody just chill. I was just trying to get you untangled. Mess messed up. Oh, up sorry. There. That was only 20, dude. Um, speaking of e-collars. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, some you know people will say like well i just want to use it as a backup i'm like well it's not going to be understood as a backup mm-hmm. unless it's properly conditioned yeah. and so you need to give you need to pair it with your cue for a while until the dog understands what it means and then you can use it as a backup and then you don't need it all the time and if you go into it like well i'm only ever going to use it as a backup then and your dog is mostly trained and it's just a backup then nine times out of 10, your dog's going to do the right thing and they won't have an experience with the e-collar. And one time out of 10, they yeah. will have experience with it, which means you are still conditioning it. It's just going to take you a lot longer. Right. But if 10 out of 10 times, there's a little bit of e-collar pressure behind that recall cue, they're learning what that e-collar means. So then when you really need it, it's there. Yeah. Um, and so I have people who have their dogs wear it in the house and just use it a little bit here and there for your day-to-day stuff for a few weeks um, and just get the dog totally used to it just being a different form of communication and usually people too if they're using e-collar pressure like that they probably also use leash pressure like that because I taught them to and so the dog is getting that concept of when you feel the physical sensation and there's words coming out of my mouth I'm talking to you yeah do the things that are coming out of my mouth and that pressure will turn off and so the dogs just catch on really really quick yeah and then you get to a point like with these guys where I do use it as a last resort in most cases, and it's just like one little tap. And yeah. it's mainly just to be a, like, hey, I'm talking to you. Yeah. Like a little, hello. Yeah. Are you paying attention? And and they're just like Biggie was doing. It. I just went to go get his leash untangled, and he kind of took that as an opportunity to stand up. He hasn't stood up in a few minutes, and and so he was just kind of in la-la land, and I'm like, hey, lay down. And he's just in la-la land, and then I give him a little tap, and he's like, oh, you're talking to me. Yeah. And he lays down. Yeah. And it's just, I mean... I
1: feel like I do that with my dogs, too, just, like, because there's three of them. Yeah. So, if I'm talking to one, they don't know right. which one I'm talking to. Right.
0: So, if I talk to you, then you don't listen. Okay, tap. I'm like, oh, me. Yeah. The yeah. other thing that I, I don't love and I, I don't teach is that, like, warning. I just think my, my verbal alone should be a warning. So, I have some people that are like, I'll say, hear. If they don't hear, then I'll vibrate. And if mm. they don't hear, then I'll stem. And then they'll say things like, all I have to do is vibrate the dog. The other thing about vibrate is that for some dogs, it's even more upsetting than a stim. Because you can't, on most, like, most of the models that are, like, your run-of-the-mill, just gives to your average pet dog client models. You can't change the vibrate, You can't change the vibrate. Like, this one I can, but I have to, like, I have to pre-set it at a different level. I can't, like, on a fly, change it like I can with the stim. Like, I can go between 20 and 100 in a matter of seconds but right. i would have to like push this programming button and tap all the way through to the vibrate and yeah, then change it right. and my other one i have to do it on the computer like plug it in with the usb and, and do it on the computer to set it so you can't just on the fly if it ends up being too much and your dog overreacts to it you can't change it um and it's just simply because the whole entire collar is shaking like, you put it on a table, and when it's stimming, nothing happens. But if you put it on a table when it vibrates, it's like, like a will thing, phone. like, yeah. across right. the table. Right. And some dogs, that's just like, what the hell? Because it's right up under their ear. Yeah. It's just a lot. Um, and for some dogs, it's just simply not effective. And so what ends up happening is your verbal loses its, its power because you say here, and they blow you off. And, and the ten seconds it takes for you to go, okay, I'm going to, you know, vibrate you they blow that off and then another 10 seconds until you stim them and then another 10 seconds so much time has passed and that whole entire time they're self-reinforcing yeah so they're out there and with certain dogs it's not the end of the world but with like a dog like kamikaze she's very aware like she's not trying to flip me the bird but she's just very aware of how much room she has to respond to things and so if i recall her and she's sniffing she heard me she's not an idiot she heard me She's just not coming back. No. And so <laughs> if I give her too much time, then it discredits that word. Yeah, what that, you asked. That, yeah. And it's, it's not from, like, a macho place of, like, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say because I'm your boss. It's from the place of, like, if I want you to know what words mean, they have to have a definition. Yeah, And sure. they have to have a timely mm-hmm. definition. And so if I say here, and you don't hear then what is that word? What does that mean? And what is our relationship? And who am I to you? And then if we are in a situation where you really need to come, I can't bank on that happening. For sure. And so it's just very important to me. So I don't like to climb like that. And I don't like it when I hear people say like, oh, the other thing is I don't like it when I say, oh, all I have to do is pick up the remote. And some dogs just learn. Like they just learn that pattern of like, you you know, like this makes a noise. Because it's got a thing, and when I had a loop on it, it made a different noise. And so that noise always happens before they receive stem. Yeah. And so they know enough to be like, oh, okay, I have to listen now. But they're not, like, cowering. Right, right. And I do have some clients that have said to me, like, oh, all I have to do is show them the remote, and they'll run in, into the other room, and they'll or they'll go in their cradle, they'll do, they'll do what I tell you. And I'm like, it's not really the emotional response that I want them to have. Yeah, no. So you're not... I'm not mad at you, but we're going to do that different. (laughs) And some people really just don't know. When my dogs see it, I think they are excited
1: because they're like, I'm about to have some freedom.
0: Yes. (laughs) When when my dogs see the collar, they do. Um, I don't have any dogs that shy away from putting the collar on. Mm -mm. Most of them either don't know what it is at all (laughs) because I don't use it that often. Yeah. And they're just neutral to it. Or they'll, like, Bauer will literally run up to me turn around so his back is facing me and sit so I can reach in front of him and collar him up. Um, Kazi will like shove her head into it because I used to have the kinds that were like a bungee loop. Yeah, yeah. Now I have a bungee but it's a snap so I go around their neck but when I used to have the bungee loop I would just hold it out and she would jump into it and so now every time I try to go put her collar on she jumps into it and like stop moving. (laughs) so they want to have it put on because it's just like grabbing a leash thing it's just part of their normal their normal get up when we go out places and so they're they want to get it on yep so you were balance trainer
1: when you switched over to common ground cannon
0: yeah well yeah Part of the reason we haven't fully made the switch yet. Yeah, no, but I was Kay. part of the reason why I was rebranding was because I was no longer feeling comfortable with I, identifying as a force retrainer. Yeah. Um And for a long time, I was comfortable doing both. Like there was some, there's some language on my website that I had to change recently because I was getting some confusion on people requesting to train positively with me, um, and I just don't do that anymore. That's just not the service that I offer. And the main reason is I'm just not as effective in those methods anymore. Um right. I ha- I'm not as practiced in them. I'm not yeah. as... I don't keep up with the learning to be good with those. So I will... Can I do it? Absolutely. I did it for three years. But I am not going to be as effective in a, a fair amount of time. Right. And I would rather... I'm not against people training that way. And if I have people that want to train that way, I will refer them to a force-free trainer that I think is good at what they do. And sometimes that confuses people because they're like, they'll say like, oh, you can't or like you hate it so much that you won't even touch it. And I'm like, no, I just want my clients to be successful. Right. And if someone is adamant about using those methods, I want them to go to somebody, especially like I had a client um, last summer maybe. Where I was still kind of on the fence, and I was still, I was still at least sitting down and having consultations with people and seeing if I could get them on board. Um, now I will, Now I'll just tell people. I will be honest with them. I'll say, I am going to. I I looked over your email. I am going to recommend a prong or an e collar. Are you comfortable with that? If yeah. if there's a reason for me to say that. If right, just, right, right, If they're just a regular client and they didn't say anything, then. Um, I don't make it a whole deal but if there's somebody that says something along the lines of like I don't want to use a prong or an e-collar or I want to use positive reinforcement and then they tell me a little bit about their dog I'll say I am going to recommend a prong or an e-collar do you still want to sit down with me yeah and if you don't I'm not going to take your money and waste your time yep and that's fine and here's a couple of names of people you can reach out to um but at the time back back when I was still kind of still evolving into who I am and I was just a little less confident in that <laughs> approach and I part of me for a while felt like that was wrong like I shouldn't do that like I should be willing to do whatever the client wants me to do it's um, your business though right and that's the conclusion that I came to but I had this client with a dog aggressive pit bull and they had for one just the wrong perspective on that dog like big time wrong perspective on that dog and we sat down for a consultation, and I really, I really just should not have even met with them. It was just a really uncomfortable consultation for a number of reasons. We just were not the right match for on many reasons, like personal and professional. And let's also
1: normalize that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That you don't have like you should vibe and be on the same wavelength as yes. the person that is working with your dog.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's very normal to, to try, search around yeah, shop to try around. a couple different uh do a couple consultations you got to shell out money for them but it's worth it to find yes. somebody that you really vibe with and i used to take that really personally when i was a younger dog trainer when people didn't call me back after a consultation i used to be like oh i'm a bad dog trainer they didn't like me and i'm like no oh, that doesn't mean i'm a bad dog trainer it's just i'm not their dog trainer and somebody out there might say literally the exact same thing that I said, but it just felt different. But it just felt different. It hit them different. It was explained to them differently. Yeah. And it just it landed. And I would much rather that person work with that trainer than work with me and have it be a struggle. Yeah. So we sat down and I, I you know I explained to them why their dog, their pitbull was dog aggressive, and why this pitbull was different than the pitbull they had before that wasn't dog aggressive. I mean. I made it very clear that, like, this is not a dog that I think is going to meet your goals and expectations of being a dog park dog. You know, we went through all that, and I said, I will not train this dog unless we are using a prong and e-collar, because this dog has the potential to be so dangerous that I do not want my name yeah. anywhere near it unless we are using tools that I know can, can stop and control that dog. Yep. I do, not there want, I do not want there to be any gray area on what your expectations of how this dog behaves around, are about how this dog behaves around other dogs. And I said, I, I understand if that's too much. You don't, you really, like, these were people who really didn't want to use prongs and e-collars. Like, really, really. <laughs> it wasn't even a question in their brain. Um, and I said, think about it and I explained how I use it, I explained why, and I was very I was very compassionate I felt um in how I explained it and made room for them. You know, I didn't come at them like you have to do this. Your dog is bad. Right, like right. you're going to fuck your dog up if you do anything else. I was just like this is why this is this is important to me and this is why I believe this to be true. And here are the facts. Here's what I will do. Here's how we will introduce it. Here's how it normally looks when I do that with other dogs. Um I even asked, like, are you comfortable with me trying a slip lead to show you what leash pressure looks like, and they, they weren't ready for that step yet, um, and I said, take your time. You don't have to give me an answer right now. Go home. Sit on it. Talk about it. Do some more research if you want. Let me know what you decide. If you decide you want to work with me, let's do it. If you decide you're not ready and you would prefer to use positive methods, I'll give you a list of trainers in the area that I think will be more, more effective. For you in that way. And they ended up coming back and saying, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for, you know, like thanks for trying with us, basically. Thanks for you know telling us everything, but we are gonna go another route. And so I gave them a list of other trainers. Um and that's fine. I would much rather do that. Um but I've also had clients that walk into the consultation and they didn't expect me to say, Let's put a slip lead on your dog. Or I had actually my favorite one was I walked into a lesson with a client that had I hadn't seen in a long time, and we had a good relationship, but I hadn't seen her in a long time, and she was really smart. Kamikaze, quit licking your butthole so loudly Thank you <laughs> um, she was really smart she was re- like she really knew her stuff about her about dogs, but it it just wasn't. It was almost like she had, like, a paralysis of, like, I know these things to be true, but they're not actually playing out in front of me. But I'm so stuck on knowing these things to be true that I can't change. Yeah. But I, then she couldn't even see that what she was doing was not changing her dog's behavior at all. And she, around covid times, she contacted me to do a lesson. And we met at a park, and I remember driving there being like, she doesn't know that I don't train like that anymore. She thinks that I'm my, she thinks I'm old Hannah. And I'm going to tell her that we need to, this is when I was like really big into slip leads. And I was like, we got to use a slip lead. And we met and we had a good rapport already. So that helped. And I was like, I think we got to do this. And I explained it to her and I said, here's why I think this will help. And here's why I think it's going to be the next phase for you. And she was like, okay. And I said, are you... And we talked a lot. Like, we beat it to death. (laughs) And I said, are you ready for me to put it on her and try it? And she said, okay. And we did it. And the dog had a hard time adjusting. A lot of dogs do, especially if they're used to having an owner that, in the name of positive training, will wait the dog out a long time and will give the dog a lot of leeway. This was a dog that I could tell was just very practiced in waiting out uh their owner and and just like like dogs can't be bratty but there's a little bit bratty you know like they just they know that they can run their owners over and there's they just have learned that the things that their owners say just don't have any definitions or hold any weight there's no consequences for standing here and pretending like you didn't hear them say Mm -hmm. that yep Um, and they will help you like a lot of handler help. So like if they recall or like if they redirect and ask her to come in too close, they won't tighten the leash, but they'll back up and like make a, you know, kissy sound and all that or lure with food. And so the dog just holds out and waits for that additional assistance that makes their life easier, but there's no consequence of you have to do this. And this dog was severely reactive to the point where like their quality of life was just so shitty. And so the dog had a a little bit of a meltdown because all of a sudden they were not able to just ignore me anymore. Yeah. Like I had something that would make the behavior happen and I was calm and I was kind, but it was this, it was simply just that I'm not used to somebody being on my ass so well. And they just kind of get kind of ho-hum. They just sit there like, oh man. And they kind of get defeated in the beginning. (laughs) They're not ready for it. Um... And so then I handed the leash over to her and, um, you know, I was like, all right, here's how you do it, do it. And I had witnessed her right when I pulled up, tell the dog to sit and the dog wouldn't sit, wouldn't sit, wouldn't sit. And now she had the slip lead in her hand. She told the dog how to sit and the dog sat instantly with a little leash pressure Mm -hmm. and she started just bawling. And I was like, What? And she's like, I have never had this much control. I have never felt like my words held weight. And all of a sudden she realized that she had been shouldering all this weight of, I need to feel in control of my dog when I go out in public because it makes me feel unsafe walking this dog that I don't have control over and it's a good sized dog and I don't think the dog would have hurt another dog yeah but it's still that lack of control of like my dog is completely unpredictable to me for the most part and And I can't control it and I'm at the liberties of the dog right yeah like we go outside and it is the dog's walk and if she's gonna bark then I'm fucked and we're we're just stuck here and I can't turn it off and I'm sitting here feeling helpless and people are looking at me and it's this whole thing and I don't have control over the situation. And all of a sudden, she had that ability just to make what she needed to happen, happen. And it was groundbreaking. And that was a huge, like, I'll always remember that moment because that's exactly what I want all my clients to feel like. It's like, you can walk out the door and you can own that walk. And it doesn't need to be like this, you know, macho, I'm the boss, I'm the alpha. It's just like, I get to decide where we go yeah. because it affects me more in the long run i'm a human being if my neighbors get pissed at me because my dog's barking at their dog that matters to me that not matters you. to me a dog <laughs> if yeah. you get off leash and you harm another person or a dog or a child that is on me that doesn't really you are not aware of those consequences i am i need to be able to say sit and heal and recall and all that and have my words be heard so that we can have a good time and both of us feel safe. And that is what being able to give tools to my clients has done for me and my business. Well, good.
1: Yeah, I think we've gone over the hour. We have. That's okay. Yeah, I'm trying to keep her
0: keep me shorter. in check a little bit. Not
1: as long-winded, but I think this was good. I don't think there was any tangents or rambling, so. Nope, it, it was,
0: was good. Awesome. It was very, very good.
1: I think now everyone... Part one and part two understands more about you now.
0: Now part three can be all about my dogs. Yes. Because people like my dogs That has to be a
1: part three because if you miss out on part one, she has five
0: million dogs. Five million. (laughs) No, I have nine. Kind of ten because I have a foster, but yeah. All right. The end. Love you, bye. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Uh, As always, you can find me on Instagram at in the woods with dogs and be on the lookout for next week's episode.